The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Today, of course, is what is known to us as Easter Sunday. This is a day which perhaps more at other times we focus on and we think about the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord. He died for us. He died for our sins. And his resurrection declares his victory in that. You can't get closer to the gospel message. You can't sum up the gospel message more than simply focusing on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. And he goes on to explain this gospel, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." Paul writes this to a church that had fallen from their steadfastness, their soundness in the faith. They no longer believed in a resurrection. And as Paul would write later in this chapter, that if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then we are yet in our sins. And so he tells them that the secret to deliverance from this destructive heresy that had so infected them was simply the gospel. The gospel will save them from that false doctrine. Christ died. He died for our sins. He was buried, and He rose again on the third day. As we begin thinking about the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord today, and today above perhaps many other days, The resurrection of Christ is an act of vindication. When you are right about something, when you know something, and others doubt what you have said, and that moment comes when you are vindicated, there is no feeling in the world like being vindicated. The resurrection of Christ is vindication. God's stamp of authenticity on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are tombs around this world of prophets and preachers, both true and false. And in every one of those graves, there is a body of that man or that woman who has taken some mantle upon themselves even men that are called of God to the work that they are called to do, like David. Peter says of him in Acts 2, His sepulcher is with us until this day. And yet there is an empty tomb near a garden, near the place of the skull, outside of the camp of Jerusalem. It was owned by a man named Joseph in which a man had, had never been placed. It was a new tomb. It was a borrowed tomb that the Lord Jesus was laid in, and on the third day He rose again. 
Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 1, "...concerning His Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh," that is, His humanity, "...and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." Did you catch that? Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And if you read verses 3 and 4 together, you see both natures of Christ combined together in what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union that Christ was both completely divine and completely human, that He was the God-man in all things human and in all things divine, the seed of David according to the flesh, but He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ vindicates Him. People often say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and yet in John 10, He said, I and my Father are what? One. And as He said that, the Jews accused Him of blasphemy and took up stones to stone Him. When he asked the question, for what good work do you stone me? They said, not for a good work, but because thou being man, makest thyself equal with God. They understood the claim to be one with the Father is to be divine. Jesus, as the Son of God, that statement does much more than merely imply his divinity. It demands it. And He was declared to be such when He was resurrected from the dead. Now, in the book of Romans chapter 4, Paul writes that Christ was delivered for our offenses, which is what we'll consider today from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. But notice the next statement in this passage, Romans 4.25, was raised again for our justification. Now, this doesn't mean that It was the resurrection of Christ that saved us from our sins. It was the crucifixion of Christ at which point salvation occurred. We were justified by His blood. We have been saved from wrath through the offering of Christ once for all. By one offering He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. When He was upon the cross of Calvary, He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. How He was raised again for our justification regards vindication. In other words, when we look at the resurrection of Christ, we understand that we have hope for this next world. Notice the next statement in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, declared righteous in our consciences by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be no assurance of salvation. There would be no peace in the conscience if Jesus occupied a tomb in the Middle East today. But He doesn't. He was raised again for our justification. The claim is vindicated. We are declared righteous because Jesus has risen again. As we turn to the book of 1 Timothy 2, with those thoughts as our backdrop, today being Easter Sunday, we spoke last week that Paul would have us to pray for all men. And as we define the word all, this is important, as we read last week, verses 1 through about verse 7, Paul exhorts us to pray for all men 
And by that word all, he means all types and all sorts of men. Indiscriminately, we pray for men. We pray for any category of men, rich, poor, of our nationality, of other nationalities. There's not to be any sort of qualification upon men whereby we look and we say, I I only pray for people who are maybe members of our church or members of our family, but we're to pray for all types of men. We're not to be discriminating in that. We pray for all men. Now, we, we should probably point out that this doesn't mean that we sit down as we looked last week and pray for all 8 billion human beings by name on planet earth. Could you imagine how long that would take? Paul doesn't mean you sit down and you pray for every individual person. That's not what the word all here means. It's defined either as all of a certain type or some of all type. You can look that up in a lexicon. You can fact check me if you want. But he would that prayers be for all and for kings, for all that are in authority We pray for our leaders because God will have all types of people to be saved, and through being saved, they are unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is a product of salvation, because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man... Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. As we gather today on Easter Sunday, our study through the book of 1 Timothy brings us to a very appropriate passage for today. That is, Christ alone is our mediator. Christ alone has given himself as a ransom for our sins, to save us from our sins, to redeem us from all iniquity. In Christ alone, we have salvation, we have deliverance. He is the hope of glory. And in him we have hope. In him we have salvation. Let's begin reading or studying through verse 5. For there is one God. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10 says that there were no gods formed before God, neither shall there be any gods formed after God. Not to engage in a bit of a tangent, we might in our semi, perhaps you might even argue post-Christian America, When you hear of there being one God, to you and to me, you say, well, of course there's one God. God is the creator of the universe. There's none before him. There's none after him. Obviously, we don't become gods. But throughout the history of the world, false religion has affirmed more than one God. False religions have affirmed a progression of gods. Think about the the Norse religion in popular culture today how many of you watch superhero movies and you probably know what i'm going to talk about but in in superhero movies one of the superheroes in the superhero movies that are so popular right now is a a guy with long hair and a beard and a hammer and he flies around with a cape and he is allegedly a god who's the son of a god who's the son of a god who's the son of a god but the bible doesn't present Deity in such a way that gods have gods that have gods, and you have a 
A genealogy of gods, as you find with Roman and Greek mythology or North, uh, Norse mythology, you have one eternal, everlasting God. From the beginning of time, Satan's one of Satan's devices has even been to offer humanity the attribute of divinity. You say, what does that mean? What is it that Satan said to Adam in the Garden of Eden? In the day you eat thereof, you will be as God. Satan's trap, his deception to Adam and Eve, were that if you eat this, you will be like God. And yet Scripture is emphatic that there is one God. And I point this out not for the sake of being mean or controversial, but the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing religions in the United States today teaches that by adhering to religion, you can be a God when you die. And the God of this universe was once a God or was once a man in another planet who adhered to their religion and became a God and now has his creation. There is one God. Now you may think, why say that? Because... In the day in which we live, we have to affirm that there is one God. Isaiah 43.10, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There are no gods before our God. There are no gods after our God. But God alone is divine. He is almighty. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. In the Psalms, Psalms 90 and verse 2, we read that from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That word everlasting is interesting. It means to the vanishing point. In other words, when time ends in each direction, as time vanishes into the distance, what is beyond that is God forevermore. To eternity past, if we can describe eternity in terms of linear time, from eternity past to eternity future, God alone is God. Thou art God. He is eternal. There is not another God in existence. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Paul says here in the book of 1 Timothy 2, there is one God. There is one God. Here's the problem. This one God, in the beginning of time, made us. And He made us upright. He made us as a special creation in His own image. In the image of God created He them. Male and female created He them and called their name man. Called their name Adam. But as you and I know, man rebelled against God. Now, you may think, well, it can't be that big of a deal. And that, that's how we are in America today. Well, it's not that big of a deal. We're, we're so soft on 
crime and criminality. We don't understand the severity of that in the sight of God. It's not that big of a deal. Go easy on them. Now, I don't believe in abusing people, and I don't believe in harming people, but going easy on and fill in the blank is one of the reasons that our country is in the shape it's in today. Whether it be going easy on our children when they break our rules. How many of you believe you had it harder when you were a kid than kids have it today? One of my buddies shared a picture the other day of a paneling wall, and it was just you know cheap, inexpensive, brown, dilapidated paneling. And he said, if you grow up in a house with walls like this, you got spanked as a child. I thought that was pretty funny. The moral of the story today is live and let live go easy on them, and that has an effect even on how we deal with criminals. Understand that God is a God of judgment and justice. And because God is a God of judgment and, ju- and justice and God is offended with us because of our sins, our sins would separate us from God for all of eternity in a prison that is called the lake of fire that sinners who are unredeemed will inhabit forevermore when this world is destroyed. That's severe. That is scary. That's serious. There is one God, but this God was offended at me. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53 says. But this one God also, in His mercy, in His infinite wisdom, in His grace, loved an innumerable host of people out of the race of Adam, out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And in a covenant before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit covenant one with another, one with the other, on behalf of these creatures, these humans, who would rebel against Him that He loved, and God the Father does elect them, God the Son chooses to come into the world, agrees to come into the world to die for them, and God the Spirit does agree to regenerate them as part of this covenant. And as we know through Romans 8, we have all of this through the death of Christ freely. There is one God. He was offended at us. We violated His Word. We violated His command. But the same one God loved us so much that before the world began, He schemed the plan and order of salvation. So that as we read so many times in the, in the Scriptures about Jesus' hour, the hour has come, Father, glorify Thy Son. We, we read that He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In Acts chapter 2, we read in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent His Son. God loved us so much that this one God whom we had offended sent His Son into the world to die for us, to redeem us from our sins. There is one God. This God is holy. This God is righteous. This God is a God of wrath. But He's also a God of mercy and compassion and love and grace. And so because of that, notice the next statement. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, 
Christ Jesus. As we think about the subject of a mediator, we use that word today with reference to an independent third party that hears a case between two individuals and then arbitrates between the two and comes to a settlement and attempts to negotiate between them. But the word in Scripture means one who intervenes between two, either in order to restore peace and make friendship or to form a compact or for ratifying a covenant. Jesus is one who intervenes between two. Now, please understand in this arrangement, as Christ is our mediator, this isn't in the sense of two offended parties working out their difference with the help of a mediator. You have a party that is guilty, and you have a party who is offended, rightfully so. And this offended party happens to be the king of creation, the judge of all men, the God of the universe. Now, that's so evident in the creation. When God creates man, he is called God. God created, God said, God said, God said. But in the paragraph that man enters into the picture, he becomes the Lord God. And what is that telling us? That God is our Lord. He is our master. I am the Lord. Jesus intervenes in between us and the Father we recently spoke from Hebrews 2. We'll be back there in just a moment, Hebrews chapter 2. But what is one of the things that Jesus says in Hebrews chapter 2? Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. When I stand before God at the end of time, when he comes again, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, with all of his holy angels with him, he sits upon the throne of his glory, before him are gathered all nations, and he begins to separate them as a shepherd divides between the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are on the right hand, the goats are on the left. I do not want to be seen of God according to what I am and what I have done. I want God to look at me through Jesus. I plead only Christ. He is my only hope. He is the hope of glory. Through him I have, I have cleanness. I have salvation. I have sanctification. I have justification. I have righteousness. He took my sin upon him upon the cross of Calvary that he might give me his righteousness freely. As Christ was upon the cross, God saw our iniquity. As we live our lives today because of Christ, God sees his son's righteousness. And this man, Christ Jesus, is the only mediator. Now, it's interesting. Pastors and commentators point out that throughout the Old Testament... Prophets, priests, and kings all served, in a sense, at various times as mediators. If you go back and read the Old Testament laws, there were laws concerning ransoms. There were laws concerning atonement and offerings that were to be made. And you have men that made intercession to God for the nation or for individuals. And they served as they did that as mediators. And we find, again, prophets and priests and occasionally even kings who would do that. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, our mediator is our prophet, our priest, and our king. The Lord Jesus serves all three of those roles in our lives. Jesus is all three. He intervenes for us. He goes between us and the Father. In fact, 
The Bible says that He ever lives to make intercession for us. Seated on the right hand of God in heaven today, Christ is interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit makes intercessions in our hearts with groanings that cannot be uttered according to the will of God. He that searcheth the mind, Christ, knows the mind of the Spirit and makes intercession to us to the Father. God is working together, as Romans 8.28 says, working together in your life as your intercessor, as your mediator, as your Savior. Your Savior. He loves you. He's your husband. He's your shepherd. He's your friend. And everything He does works together for you, for good. God loves you. He cares for you. And as you look at the crucifixion, as you look at the resurrection and the empty tomb, let it be to the justification, the vindication. We have assurance through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we know that it's finished because He rose from the dead. He is our mediator. As we think about a mediator, what's the purpose when an offended or two offended parties come together in mediation? Well, they attempt to bring about what is known as reconciliation. If you have trouble in your home, what is it that we always pray for a couple that has issues? We pray for reconciliation. And that might be because one spouse has sinned and the other is offended, or it might be because both spouses have sinned and they're both offended. And mark my word, in in either case, God is offended. But we pray for reconciliation. We pray that they can come back together and that things can be right again with them. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. God is pleased with reconciliation, whether it be to be reconciled to someone that has offended you earlier in your life or family members you're estranged from, loved ones, friends. God loves reconciliation. We've got patterns of how to reconcile differences in Scripture, and we're to come at this with a spirit of charity, because without charity I'm a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. I'm to come to the table of mediation, as it were, to arbitrate the issues with love in my heart and forgiveness and to freely forgive as Christ has forgiven me. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to be walked all over because the Bible gives plenty of examples of casting out the scorner that contentions may cease. And we know that if a man won't hear us and if he won't hear witnesses and if he won't hear the church, he's to be a heathen man and a publican, people that are shunned, people that are not allowed to be around, people that you avoid. When people reconcile their differences, God is so glorified. He is pleased with it. In those moments in our lives, we can depict just a little portion of what God has done through Christ for us. But as we think about mediation and being a mediator, we're really entering into the arena of reconciliation, of an offended party and an offending party are brought back into a right standing one with another. As we think about Christ as our only mediator today, think about this. Through Christ, myself as an offender can approach God and have fellowship with Him once again because He is no longer offended at me. Now this has effects in our day-to-day lives, but it also has effects for eternity. Praise God it has effects for eternity. 
When I die, I will be with the Lord Jesus. I trust and I hope because Jesus died for me, I can approach unto the Father. But at the same time, here in this world, I can fellowship with God. I can worship Him. I have the right to come to Him in prayer. And because of the priesthood of Christ who makes intercession for me, my mediator, I can boldly go to the throne of grace and find, obtain mercy to help in times of need. This is the concept of reconciliation. An offended party, an offending party is brought back into a right standing with an offended party. Now we notice that this is through what? The man, Christ Jesus. Now we already emphasized for you the point that in Romans 1, Christ is the son of David. He's the offspring of David. But as we know through Romans 1, He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. He didn't become the Son of God through the resurrection, but He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is both human and He is divine. Our salvation depended on both. But you notice that our mediator is what? The man Christ Jesus. Our salvation depends on Christ being both God and man. You see, if Christ were merely a man as you and I, He would not be able to redeem us because He would have a sin nature. He would be unsuitable. He wouldn't have lived a perfect life. No man, as John sees in heaven, as he's in his vision, he he looks, and no man in heaven, no man in the earth, no man under the earth is worthy to take the book and to loose the seals thereof. And that's an imagery, not of Scripture, but... God intervening in human history. God alone can intervene in human history. No man in the earth or under the earth or in heaven is worthy to interject himself into the situation and to bring salvation. But John is directed by one of the elders, Behold, behold the Lamb. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the seals of the book. And he looks and there was a Lamb as it had been slain. And he worshipped him. Only Christ is worthy. Only Christ is able. The man Christ Jesus. As we think about the man Christ Jesus, the word Christ means anointed. And the New Testament word for Christ is one and the same with the Old Testament word or concept for anointed. And so the Old Testament prophesied of the anointed And the anointed one was the Christ. And so Jesus, being Jesus Christ, the word Christ there isn't his last name. It's not the same as saying Ben Winslet, Jesus Christ, but the word Christ means anointed. And so his name was Jesus, Jesus in Greek, Greek, Yeshua or Yahushua in Hebrew, Jesus, the Savior. The, The name above all names the God-man. We have salvation only through Christ. Only Christ is good enough. It's It's amazing. Only God is good enough, but at the same time, a man had to suffer for men. Hebrews 2 says that he took upon him not the form of angels. Had Jesus come in the form of an angel, if he'd taken upon himself the nature of an angel as he did the nature of a man, he would only be able to redeem angels. But he didn't come to redeem angels. 
We know that the blood of bulls and goats will not satisfy the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 10. And so God in his wisdom, before the world even began, devises this scheme of deliverance where the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the eternal Son of God, the Word, would be made flesh, would dwell among us, live a life that's sin-free and spotless, never violate a single law of God, and yet suffer the penalty of the law of God on our behalf. As Isaiah 53 says, though all we like sheep have gone astray, as we already quoted, the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin of every child of God from the beginning of time to the second coming was laid upon that man, that man who suffered, the man Christ Jesus. He was in all points human, body, soul, and spirit, emotions, growth, learning. What a mystery is that? The child grew in wisdom and stature, and yet at the same time he was omnipotent and omniscient. John 3 speaks to the fact that no one ascends to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even he who is in heaven. How can he have descended, would ascend, but yet was with God in heaven? Because he's God. And yet at the same time, he became man and experienced everything this world has to offer in terms of suffering, in terms of the emotion, the growth. The the story of any man except sin is what he went through. He, He was a baby that cried when he was hungry. He was a baby that was fed. He learned to crawl. He learned to walk. His hair grew. His mother had to clip his fingernails, had to change him, had to bathe him. He grew to the point that his voice began to change and his beard began to grow. He worked with his father, his adopted father, who was a carpenter. Please understand that it's important that Joseph was Jesus' adopted father. Jesus has a right to the throne of David through both parents, uh, Joseph and Mary. (coughs) Through two different sons of David, Nathan and Solomon. He was his adopted father. And he worked in his, his adopted father Joseph's business with him, as, as any boy would have. He was human. And, and I want to emphasize that today as we speak about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. This morning on the radio, we spoke on the subject of the passion of Christ. And perhaps we should save this for when we speak about the fact that he gave himself as a ransom for all, but... Jesus experienced suffering. He had to suffer. This is why God couldn't just come down and in some sort of a theophany, some sort of a, an appearing of God as, as with the Garden of Eden or when God appeared to Moses, or excuse me, when God appeared to Abraham in the plain of Mamre, when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, God couldn't just come and appear on a cross and disappear and All of a sudden, we're redeemed. God had to become man so he could suffer what men deserved. In Acts 1, it's described as his passion. 
We're all familiar with the movie The Passion of the Christ, but seldom do we realize that that word passion means suffering. The word compassion means to suffer with another. If you're compassionate, you suffer with people in their afflictions. Christ's passion was his suffering. The man Christ Jesus is our mediator because that man, that man, God incarnate, but that man suffered the full pain of the cross. Don't think for a moment that Jesus was some sort of a superhero like in these movies with impenetrable skin and no feeling of pain. No sense of shame as they stripped him and they scourged him and they beat him and they pummeled him and they mocked him. He felt every time that whip impacted his back. He felt the skin on his back shred as the scourge made impact. He he felt the crown of thorns as it dug into his brow. Every time they smote him with the palms of their hand, as they pulled the hair of his beard, he felt every single moment of that. When the nails went through his hands and his feet, he felt it. You might never have noticed this detail. When Jesus has carried his cross to Golgotha to be crucified, when he arrived there, they offered him gall and vinegar to drink. Vinegar, you might think that's an insult, but that was a common drink for a Roman soldier of the day. Gall was a sedative. And so when Jesus comes to the cross, much like everyone else there, he's offered sedative to make it quicker and to take some of the agony away. It was a mild sedative, but a sedative nonetheless. And yet, what did Jesus do? He refused. What is that telling you? He had to experience every ounce of pain. And as we know through Isaiah 53, he was a lamb done before the shearers, so he opened not his mouth. He went to the cross. He went to the cross. He wasn't dragged there. He wasn't reluctantly brought there. He set his face as a flint. He must go to the cross. The man Christ Jesus. The Word was made flesh. Hebrews 2 says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a faithful high priest unto them in all things pertaining to God. He took not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. And in doing this, guess what he's brought? Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, reconciliation. Christ has reconciled us by the offering of his body once and for all. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, "...who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time." Now we know that... Again, the word all, as we defined it last week, when he said pray for all men, the meaning there is to pray for all types of men. That's simple grammar. We know that Jesus died for all that the Father had given him. How do you know that? John 17, verses 1 through 3. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is his prayer following his upper room discourse, following communion shortly before the crucifixion. In the next chapter, he'd be arrested. Father, the hour is come. It's time. It's time that I suffer. He said in John 11, as they ride into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, it takes up nearly, this last week, takes up nearly 50% of John, 48% of John. 
What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? For this hour I'm coming to the world. That's what I'm here for. My work is at hand. Thy will be done. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Say, how many people did Jesus die for? As many as the Father has given him. How many people are in heaven? As many as the Father has given him. What does it mean to have eternal life? And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The joy of heaven is not merely deliverance from hell. The glory of heaven is that you are there with God, experiencing the bliss of His presence for eternity. We're not merely saved from wrath, we're saved to glory. And that's why in the resurrection, the state that we are is glorified. Whether it be from 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans chapter 8, to be raised in the image of Christ is glorification, no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, but resurrected like Christ. We will be with Him in a world with no suffering. For whom did He die? As many as the Father had given Him. But these are all in in the sense that they are a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, all types, all sorts. To us, that doesn't mean a lot today. Not only the religious elite of Jerusalem, not only Jews, but people like me and you, people that were not good enough, people that even the religious folks of the day look down their nose at and say, well, they certainly can't be people with whom God is pleased. You think about the self-righteousness of the Pharisee that went to the temple and looked at the publican and said, God, I thank you that I'm not as, as other men, especially that guy. And which one of those two men went home justified in his conscience? Not the Pharisee. The phenomenal point that God died for all sorts is that even people like me and people like you, from the least to the greatest of them, they will be saved. He gave himself a ransom for all. Think about this word ransom for just a moment. A ransom is the price paid for redemption. Price paid for redemption. There are several laws pertaining to this in the Old Testament. It was a concept that was very common. It released a person a ransom from either slavery or punishment. The first occurrence of this is in Exodus, and the, it's an interesting case. If you own an ox and the ox gores someone, there's a, a ransom that must be paid. But throughout the Old Testament from this point on, there are occasional references to paying the ransom. We understand that in our modern day because when someone is taken hostage or they're kidnapped, usually there's a what? There's a ransom letter. I'll give you this person back if you give me this much money. It's the price paid for redemption. The buying back of someone who has sold themselves into sin. Now, we observe that it's to be released from either slavery or punishment. But in our case, it was both. We were ransomed from slavery to sin, and we were delivered from the punishment of God because of that sin. Sometimes in the Old Testament, 
It's even used to denote freedom from foreign nations who invaded the children of Israel. As we speak about ransom, we consider a similar subject, that of atonement, which literally comes from three words, at one meant, and it's a synonym for reconciliation. Atonement. Jesus has made for us the what? The atonement. At one meant. We are made at one with God through the offering of Christ. Now, I want you to focus on this as we think about the crucifixion and the resurrection today. I hope you studied the crucifixion this week. I hope you read about the sufferings of Jesus. It's Even if you didn't, I would encourage you to spend the rest of the day reading the gospel accounts of Jesus being crucified and resurrected. As we consider the price that was paid, we weren't redeemed with silver and gold. We weren't redeemed with the vain conversation or tradition of religion that had been passed down. But we were redeemed by the precious blood of a lamb. We were redeemed. The ransom that was paid was Jesus himself, who gave himself a ransom. Now, we end today with this last expression in 1 Timothy 2.6. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You know that we've been studying psalms lately, and you know how much we've enjoyed looking at various psalms. The most graphic psalm that depicts the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins very familiarly, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What language is that? It's the language of Jesus as he hung upon the tree. And they heard him and they said, He cries for Elijah. Will Elijah come save him? But he didn't cry for Elijah or Elias. He cried for God. Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Psalm 22, we read various cries of Christ and the thoughts of Christ as he hung upon the tree. Prophetically, David speaks before it was accomplished by hundreds of years. I cry in the daytime, thou hearest not. Our fathers trusted in thee, they cried and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. These are the words of Jesus. This is his passion. This is what he thinks and he feels upon the cross. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. It's a prophecy of the virgin birth. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me. Trouble is near me. He then describes his enemies as wild beasts. Bulls of Bashan that surround him and ravenous roaring lions. He says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint because he's hanging up on a cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Behold, I thirst. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced 
my hands and my feet, referring to the nails. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be not far from me, O Lord. Now, this is obviously a prophecy of the crucifixion. And yet, at this point in the psalm, it pivots into another direction. Look at verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. That word in the New Testament is assembly or church. Will I praise thee in the midst of the church? If a man is crucified, he's attacked, he's in the dust of death, for him to go from the dust of death to declaring the name of God unto his brethren in the assembly, what has to happen? He's got to be resurrected. He's got to be resurrected. How does Paul in that verse to be testified in due time? Now I want you to look at the last two verses of this psalm and we'll close. A seed shall serve him. Who is that? That is you. That is you. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Who is that? That is you. But I want you to notice this last statement. And I hope you have chills up your spine and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. They shall declare unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. The phrase that he hath done this translates from one Hebrew word. And this one Hebrew word means it is finished. Because he hung on the tree, because he was resurrected, we shall declare unto people that are not even born that it is finished. As Jesus hung upon the cross of Calvary, as he cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, you know what he cried out? It is finished.